All right, Footnerds, we're back. We had some tech difficulties, some tech glitches. Zoom kind of freaked out there for a sec and the recording ended, but uh, we'll post this in two parts and we'll just continue where we left off. So Ruth was talking about not only are we uh, what we eat, but we're also, you know, how we eat has a big role to play as well. So Ruth, you want to pick up on that? Yeah, I was just, um, I was just talking about the, the food that we eat is one thing. We've gotten so we've gotten so caught up, I think, in our food culture about like what's good for us, what's bad for us, how can I burn fat, how can I build muscle, how can I do this, what's good for my fascial system, what's good for my kidneys, what's good, what's what's not good, that we have forgotten about the how we eat, right? The ceremony that I think I had mentioned this that humans are wired for ceremony and ritual and like who we eat with, how we consume the food, how we prepare the food. Is it, that's why I think it, it's wonderful to have a kitchen where people, Emily Gooding did a, did a great job about like how she would, I just loved sometimes she, when we would be on Zoom calls and she would just be cooking in her kitchen. And we, it, I felt like I was part of that where there's like a warmth and a, um, you know, there's like a hearth in the kitchen. And so, um, and then are we hurried? Are we stressed? Are we indifferent? I think I mentioned I would had made some really delicious sweet potatoes. I was working and I was hurried and I, that's just one end of the spectrum where I wasn't even like stressed. I was just hurried and I was eating. And then um, the other end of the spectrum is sometimes I'll be having an argument with my spouse, which that happens from time to time. And then we'll, if it's at dinner time, I start to like not feel good because I realize that, wow, I, if I'm stressed, I probably shouldn't be eating at that moment, you know, and my body tries to tell me, but I'm like, no, but this is food and it's good and I must eat. Yeah, that's a really good point. And I think this notion that the food can't be disconnected from the environment it was created in, but the food we eat can't be disconnected from our ability to digest it. And if we're in like this stress state, you know, I used to always uh, grab food between meetings if I was driving. And I realized that like driving is the least is the last place you should ever be eating because driving is actually pretty stressful for humans. Like there's so much input we have to process. It's a high level of, um, you know, just like there's a high level of alertness needed to drive this giant metal thing that can literally turn into a death machine if we're not paying attention. And this whole notion that how we eat has a massive bearing on our ability to actually absorb nutrients uh, optimally and that the context around when we eat um, and how we eat is just as important as what we eat. Um, And I, yeah, that's a really, that's a really important point that I think we discount. And, you know, I've kind of made a personal rule in my life to be like, really aware and honest with myself that if I'm eating in a car, it's like, you know, not fooling myself into thinking I have to do that because it's never the case. Um, and just, uh, just recognizing that and just Mm -hmm. knowing that like the state you're in determines your ability to actually absorb the food you're eating, regardless of what you're eating. Uh, I think that's important. Um, I just want to say one thing that I remember, like how my, my, my friends who have like babies and they walk them in strollers and they put the, um, they put like goldfish or Cheerios or something there. And we, and Matthew and I, we would walk with our friends and they would want, we would ask them like, why not fruit? And the, and like in our hurried culture and stuff, how like there's so many arguments for like, it's too messy to eat the orange. These are, this is simple, easy food, you know? And then the child is like in the stroller going away, going, looking away from everything, eating like, you know, I mean, I'm not saying the goldfish are terrible, but it's like that in place of, I mean, it's not a really good argument to say like, I'm, I don't want to give my child the whole food because it's messy. He's going to get all messy. 
And I'm, so I'm going to give it this, give the child this, you know, less than, you know, high phytonutrient. I'm going to give the child less phytonutrients because it's too messy. Right. Yeah. It's too inconvenient to be healthy is what I hear when people say that. It's like, okay, well, wait until you wait until you have the health problems. Then that's real inconvenient, right? Like eating, getting orange on your hands is uh, a much lesser inconvenience versus like feeling like shit for a day or having a health consequence or having like health complications. Right. So it's like, it's like this short-term thinking of less sticky stuff on my hands in the short term um, is where is, is what guides people's decision versus like long-term, like how are the health of the tissues of my child? Um, So I I think it's just, I mean, humans are designed to be efficient, right? Right. And I think if we, I think the fundamental problem is that we don't understand the long-term consequences of the trade-offs we make and we don't actually connect them, right? Like me feeling terrible for a day. um, A lot of times people, you know, if you feel terrible, we don't connect that to like, what's the quality of my sleep? what did I eat? Right. We don't Mm -hmm. connect those two things. It's simply like, Oh, I feel terrible because I feel terrible. It's just how it is. Mm -hmm. And so I think if we just tune into what could be causing me to feel terrible, right. Specific adaptation to impose demand. If everything, if nothing is just bad luck and random with the body, there's always some sort of explanation that typically boils down to something we're doing to ourselves to create that problem. Um, And that's often like, you know, putting the mirror on yourself and saying, I'm doing this. I'm responsible. I'm taking full responsibility and I'm responsible for my state um, really makes you put the mirror in front of you and ask yourself, what am I doing to create this? And that's a more inconvenient and harder thing to do um, than just saying, oh, it's not my fault. It is what it is. So yeah, I think short-term, long-term thinking and just having actually wanting to spend energy and attention to understand food. I think that's the difference, right? And sometimes people have to hit catastrophe before they do that but hopefully you know if you're listening to this you came here through curiosity and so thank you for being here because what you do in your life regarding food will rub off on others um and when others have questions hopefully you can answer them uh with with sort of a broader context um let's talk about some food principles and i really like michael pollan's book in defense of food this was like a core textbook for the footner program last year it's a highly recommended book uh for the for the program now but the seven words that he wrote he basically said that like after all this research um into food he kind of distilled it into seven words which are eat food not too much mostly plants and i just thought that was beautiful simplicity and and each one of those obviously can be unpacked on their own but when he says eat food, what he really means is eat real food, right? Eat um, something that nature provides. Um, and so understanding how to distinguish food, real food from food-like products is important. Not too much is, uh, can be very subjective, but obviously I think we would all agree there's, it's possible to eat too much food, right? Like the amount of obesity um, out there now doesn't just have to do with eating too much food in terms of volume. It can also be eating the wrong kinds of food, right? If you give your body poor information, it might um, make decisions in terms of storing energy that might not be best for your health. Um, And then mostly plants, right? I I think probably most of us will do well by being omnivores by eating, you know, everyone can make their own decisions about what they choose to eat. But I think overall um, we've gotten to a point where we in general, consume probably more meat than is natural. Um, and so the, the notion of mostly plants doesn't say only plants um, or no plants. It just says like eat mostly plants. And I think that's a, 
you know, it's very broad, but it also leaves a lot of room for interpretation, which is nice. So though, in terms of principles, I think those are very powerful. And then, you know, simple heuristics, um, which are just like rules of thumb, which on the mm-hmm. tree of understanding would represent the branches. Um, you know, things like the longer the ingredient list is, the less likely it is real food. Um, mm-hmm. When it comes to packaging and things that last a long time, it's probably not real food, right? Not yeah. even bacteria or microbes want to eat it. So I don't know if it's something you should be interested in eating. And so just having these quick rules of thumb uh, and understanding the base principles and just making sure that the way you consume food in your life and view food in your life sort of aligns with these fundamental principles, I think is a big way of simplifying food. Because I, I think we've gotten very deep into overcomplicating food with things like nutrition, which we'll talk about next. But I think overall, if we know the principles and we have some useful rules of thumb that we can apply in our own lives, it's going to make food much simpler. It'll make food a lot less anxiety provoking. Um, and it will help rebuild a more natural relationship with food, which I think is the mission. Yeah, for certain. The, the, the pleasure trap talks a lot about, this is the motivational triad so that humans were designed for three things. Well, all, or all animals, which is to seek pleasure always. And first to avoid pain and to conserve energy. And so um, when we think about like food and food like substances right so like michael pollan talking about eating food and you describing food as like something that comes from like the natural world um you know with and then the ingredients list not being too long it's so interesting because our taste buds are hijacked by the high fats and sugars and salts and stuff right so that it makes it um pretty unpleasant initially to to try to eat real food which we'll talk about a little bit in the future when we talk about fasting and stuff in the next few minutes. But um, I love the idea about returning to the original, like reclaiming the original pleasures of the palate. So eating real food, you know, I, I've, I've heard this so many times about like, it doesn't taste good. It's, and it's just from a lack of understanding on how to go about it. And then the other thing about like meat is that, you know, meat in the, in the past has been, used as a condiment because it was so super expensive. I think there was like some, there was like some um, evidence in like T. Colin Campbell book, the China study or something that it was like $90 a pound and only like Kings and Queens and royalty and very wealthy people could afford meat so that we just used it as like a flavoring. And now we have access to such cheap meat that we eat low quality meat and we, um, eat it like three times a day where, where that wouldn't actually be sustainable even for Kings and Queens back in the day. Right. So, so I think that it's just such, if we just look at the history, look where we've come from, it's, it kind of makes common sense, like use the, like reverse the things on your plate. And then the mostly plants, it's like, well, if you're eating mostly plants, like Dr. Furman always talks about, make the salad, the main meal, essentially like you will feel full if you eat a giant salad before you eat a cheeseburger. I mean, so have a cheeseburger, but eat a huge salad with nuts and seeds and, you know, all the good stuff first. And then your belly will actually have stretched because there's so much volume in there that you won't, you'll probably only eat like half of the thing that you, the nasty thing that isn't so great for us, you know, or the delicious, nasty thing. Anyway, I just wanted to touch on that. Yeah. I think the, the, the like heightening of our taste bud thresholds, right? If you're used to highly processed, crazy designed, sweet, fat, salty, 
like these hypernormal stimuli um, than just fruit, which used to be like the most delicious um, source of sugar can seem not that tasty, right? Because mm-hmm. it's not this hypernormal, um, you know, like supernatural stimulus that never actually occurs in nature. And so I think we have to almost recalibrate our taste buds and know that it's worth doing. Um, and you can get to a point where like fruit is the most delicious candy ever and it's Mm -hmm. made by nature and it's natural and it has, you know, fiber in it so that you can't just like the, I find pop to be the craziest thing, right? Like to, to drink sugar, uh, to drink sugar syrup and have it be instantly available. It's basically like you're mainlining sugar Mm -hmm. and it's so crazy that, that we, you know, it hasn't really caught on that that's insanely harmful to our bodies, despite yeah. all these people, you know, despite like seemingly half the United States having type two diabetes, we, we don't really clue in that. Like when you drink syrup, um, it's really bad for your body. And so I yeah, think we then, just have to recalibrate our, our, our taste buds. Yeah. And so the, the neuro, it's like the neuroadaptation. So I'm just going to go here, right? Like it, because it's, it, it is, it does seem logical that the neuroadaptation that happens in our mouth from that thing that you're talking about, where we get highly um, desensitized to like, like fruit sugars from our adulterated diet. um, It's like alcohol or drugs, right? So it is, we do eat an addictive diet. It's like the science, there's a lot of scientific evidence to show that. And so like it takes, so when we um, eat all that stuff, that, that highly adulterated food that tastes delicious or feels delicious in our, in our brain or our souls, because we're feeling some kind of void. <laughs> um, then, then it, then it's the same as like building a tolerance to alcohol, mm-hmm. right? So like you, you have neuroadaptation to the amount of alcohol that you drink and over time you need more. And there's no different with our 10,000 taste buds in our mouth they get, you know, highly desensitized to those types of things. That's why when we talked in the earlier one, like in the earlier lesson about like what you see in commercials between two hamburger buns is like mac and cheese or a hamburger in 42 cheeses with jalapeno poppers, onion rings in between two donuts. You're like, really? That is addiction right there. That is like true addiction. And then so that the, that neuroadaptation depending on how adulterated your diet is, it's going to take like two to three weeks. And it's a very systematic approach. You can take that stuff out easily. And then you're, you do get retrained to the original pleasures of eating a piece of fruit return. And I'm, I love it. I think it's so yeah. awesome. Yeah. And it's and so simple it, and it's so cheap. It is. And I think that, you know, that is a healthy transition away from hyper addictive, hyper normal stimuli back to like natural stimuli, which requires like, you have to be motivated. It's, it's a hard thing to do, right? Like addiction is a hard thing to unwind. And so you have to have a big enough motivation or understanding to warrant wanting to do that. And you have mm-hmm. to be around other people, hopefully, who are also wanting to do that. So you can do it together because it is a, mm-hmm. it can be a challenging task. You don't have to do it all at once, but, mm-hmm. um, and, and I, maybe I should say here, it's like, I'm not going to say that I never eat those things, right? Sure. Like cookies or junk food. But I, I really think it's about being self-aware and honest with ourselves. Mm-hmm. But like, what is our relationship with those things? How mm-hmm. much of them are we actually consuming? Are we, sure. are we consuming food also, right? Because if you consume actual real food, maybe that gives you um, the option to be able to consume some, some food like products and not have huge consequences, right? Um, yeah. 
but I think it's all about balance and, you know, everything in moderation, including moderation. The minute you say, I'm not going to have this, it's kind of like saying, don't think of a white polar bear. Mm -hmm. It's like, you're going to think of it and it might even have more control over you if you're trying to abstain from it. So I think it's really, everyone has to find their own balance. Everyone has to be honest with themselves about what is my relationship with food like products? How big are, how, how big of my food, how much of my food consumption do food like products, um, take up right now and how do I want to shift that and how do I just start right yeah Um, and self-awareness Nikki Pop because like I was just thinking about taking a you know we changed our diet we we eat all kinds of stuff now but like in the beginning um it was different and a little harder and then now I noticed like because I love super crunchy potato chips you know I love crackers and potato chips anything crunchy or um but I'll take a spin through the 17 aisles that have all that stuff in there after I've, you know, while I'm shopping on in the frozen section or the produce section or the, the area of the shopping, the market that has the things I want to buy. And then I'll look at things like the cakes are beautiful. You know, the, the, the bakery makes beautiful cakes and the potato chip aisle is there's like about a thousand different kinds of chips with every different kinds of flavors. And what I've noticed is that like when I, sometimes if I go to the market hungry or stressed or hurried or sad, (laughs) I'll pick up a bag of potato chips and being self-aware, like, wow, I'll, I'll open the bag of chips and then I will feel myself not be able to actually stop eating it. You know, like it's so, it's such a weird feeling, like how, our brains work. And I, I, I literally feel like, um, like an addict, like, I don't think I can stop eating this donut hole, even if I wanted to, like, I have to open the bag and then throw some of it away or give it away. I just, and then just being self-aware, like, how do you feel? How are you doing this? Why are you doing this? Mm. And sometimes, you know, like we talk about feasting, right? So it's not, so eating food like substances, isn't just like when you need to fill a void in your soul. It's also like when we, I noticed that when we eat the way that we eat, which is um, real food, not too much, mostly plants, and then we go to the feast, we eat and we participate in the feast and we eat the things, the birthday cake and the whatever it is, and we enjoy it in a different kind of way because of the way that we're showing up. It's not our diet every single day. Right. Yeah. It's like a novelty. And I don't yeah. think there's anything wrong with that mm-hmm. um, as long as it's not carrying consequences. And once again, it really is, you know, we are the easiest people to fool ourselves. And so I think the self-awareness is really the important part there because no one can tell you whether something's good or bad for you apart from yourself, but you have to be honest with yourself, but whether in reality, it actually is, um, like whether or not you have a sense of control over what you're doing, if you're doing something that you know, isn't great for your health, but you have no sense of control over it. I think just sitting with that and non-judgmentally observing it and saying like, well, what's going on here? What are the conditions mm-hmm. surrounding this, th- the, you know, this thing I ate and I just crushed a whole box of cookies. Like what made me, you know, what made me want to do that what was a precursor to that. And I think just observing that and being able to learn from the lesson without feeling any guilt or shame or, you know, just observing it and trying to learn from it instead of uh, beating yourself up over it, I think is mm-hmm. a, I think is an important point. Um, so we talked about food principles. Let's talk about this whole notion of unlearning nutrition, because I think, I think nutrition, like anything is probably, um, well-intentioned as a, as a science, it's a very young science. I think that's an important thing to say, Uh right? Like the track record of nutritional science isn't great. Um, they've been mostly wrong. 
Um, and I think they've been sort of, I think nutritional science has been mostly used as a marketing tool for food like products. And so, you know, I think simple is better. And the whole, you know, overarching principle of unlearning nutrition and relearning food might seem like it's the silly thing to say with for someone who doesn't have context. But I think, you know, Michael Pollan talks about nutritionism, this ideology of nutrition. And, you know, nutritionism defined as the scientifically, uh, the scientifically identified nutrients in foods determine the value of the foods. And so, you know, if the value of the food is simply the sum of its constituent nutrients, I think a lot of companies use that assumption to basically say, well, real food uh, is no longer as good for you as engineered processed foods where we can put the right nutrients in the right quantities, despite them not being created by nature, right? Like this whole premise that, well, if it's about nutrition and not about food, then factories can theoretically create something better than what nature can. And I think that's a very dangerous, slippery assumption that gets used um, by companies to market foods designed in factories that don't align with our biology, that aren't created by nature and are sold to us as better alternatives that are cheaper and more nutrient dense than real foods. And I think that's a really slippery thing. Um, that's a slippery thing to get into. And so I think this notion that if we unlearn nutrition and if we don't focus on the, the nutrition aspect, which a lot of it, I think is misplaced precision that ends up being proven wrong, um, based on the history track record of new of nutrition science. And we just focus on food, the simple principles of food. I think we're going to be much better off and simplicity gives clarity, gives, the ability to make decisive action um, and feel good about it instead of getting overwhelmed with all the complexity um, in this like weird language that only food scientists know. And therefore, if we, if it's too complicated for the average person to understand, we need to forfeit responsibility for understanding food to the food scientists who, who, who are the only ones who understand this. And I think that's Uh dangerous. Um, Yeah. So unlearning nutrition, relearning food, Uh, Let's talk a little bit about fasting and sort of, you know, we won't talk too much about it because I think this will be a good opportunity for some layer two conversations Mm -hmm. about fasting directly or just sharing stories about fasting. Um, But for myself, you know, like I found fasting to be an extremely powerful force um, for healing and sort of giving the body time to reset. Like right now, my voice is kind of raspy because I passed three or four days. I've uh, had what I think is COVID. Um, But regardless, I most of the days I didn't eat. And, you know, my thinking really shifted when someone a couple of years ago said, you know, when we take in food, it's a stressor for our bodies, right? It's an energy intensive process where our body has to devote energy resources to breaking down the food and then allocating the the nutrients of value to the right places. And the fact that that consumes energy, which, you know, if we're in a state where we're trying to uh, conserve our energy so that our bodies can fight whatever invader or whatever challenge it's facing, the energy required to digest food is energy no longer available to um, essentially protect the body or to repair the body. And so this whole notion that what we often deem as hunger um, is usually uh, a mental habit of wanting to eat because we think that our, you know, if our clock says, oh, it's noon, it's lunchtime, regardless of whether I'm hungry or not, that is the time I eat. And so we've basically trained ourselves to eat at certain times. Uh, I think we underestimate this notion that external cues often 
uh, tell us when to eat, not internal cues. You know, like an internal cue would be like uh, feeling hungry or full. An external cue would be something like um, smelling food, seeing food, seeing mm. a food advertisement. And I think a lot of our drive to consume food is driven by external cues um, and not internal cues. And, and tapping back into those internal cues takes a little bit of um, effort. Um, and I think fasting is a really beautiful way to experience what it feels like to actually be hungry. Um, and Dr. Jason Fung has some great books on fasting, but you know, the fundamental truth that I've found is that constantly eating is actually very unnatural. Like we're not designed to be constantly consuming food. And I think Michael Pollan talks about this fourth meal. Uh, you know, we have the breakfast, lunch, and dinner traditional template and how we've added this fourth occasion for food, which lasts all day long. And it's called snacking and has essentially started to overwhelm our system. So it never gets a chance to kind of reset and sort of just take a rest, right? Like our digestive tract, I think is supposed to have periods where it's just able to rest and reset and prepare for the next batch of nutrients that are coming in. And if we've eliminated that, if we've eliminated that rest period, uh, I think it probably has consequences long-term. What are your thoughts on fasting or stories or experience with fasting? I have a lot of different experience with fasting, but, um, but one of the things that I read in Dr. Furman wrote a great book called fasting and eating for health. And he talks in there about how like the digestive system actually has an, a, a, a different process that it goes through besides like peristalsis and then like breaking down of food. Like when the, when the, digestive system doesn't actually have food in there for four to five hours it starts to do it starts to kick into um a different it recognizes that there isn't anything to break down and 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 package and store and then it and then it goes into another mode which is like hyper repair rejuvenation and restoration and it's really interesting about like how where our body, our digestive system is actually designed to have a break and how much of our human energy besides our brain goes to digesting food all the time. And like when we teach yoga and, and when we sleep, you know, when we go into Shavasana and we talk about like the resting pose, like how, when you're deeply at rest is the only time that your body can actually do the job of repair, restoration, rejuvenation, detoxification. If we're eating all throughout the day, we never have a chance and if you're eating all the way into the evening, you know, while you're on the couch and, and snacking while watching television or whatever, and then you go to bed, your body still is digesting into the night when the whole beauty of sleep is not just the sleep for the brain, but for the digestive system. So I think there's a lot to unpack in the way of like what fasting does, the, the reset of the taste buds and the neuroadaptation cleaning out the palate and returning to the original circuitry and the pleasures of what it means to, um, you know, have a piece of fruit. Matthew and I fasted for 12 days, water only. And we, yeah, we did that. And we broke our fast on new year's Eve with a glass of a champagne glass full of water and an orange. And I'm not kidding. It was, I have never, like my taste buds were just like exploding like firecrackers. It was so awesome. Like how I've never been that grateful um, for an orange in my life. It was so tasty, but there's, there's a lot around fasting, you know? Um, and then the snacking and the, you know, the, the, what you were talking about with like the food industry, like kind of deceiving our, our, our taste buds, you know, like 
creating the, this, in, this high, highly manufactured like chemical ingredient list in order to like really deceive the motivational triad. And so, um, you know, I think we have a couple of options. We can either try, we can submit to letting that the food industry take over and, and take over those, that sensation, or we can start to try to work to, to, to reclaim and like recover our original circuitry. Um, and, uh, and yeah, so that's what I have to say about that. Yeah. And I think fasting is a, you know, it's a very broad umbrella term, right? Like fasting can mean like what you did 12 day of water fast. I've done a five day water fast, which was um, pretty tough for me. And I regularly do like a 24 hour water fast, mm-hmm. um, but even time restricted eating where there's certain yep. periods of the day, like I eat usually one meal a day in the evening between like five and seven is usually my eating window. And sometimes I'll have like some nuts or snacks or a fruit during the day. If I, if I want to, like, this isn't a hard thing where it's like, I'm not allowed to eat until this time. It's just, that's worked for me. It gives me more energy during the day. And I think everyone has to do their own experiments, right? Like um, someone's first experiment might be skip breakfast. That might be a good initial fasting experiment and just log, like, how do I feel when I don't eat breakfast? Right. And I think we've really, there's a lot of programming to tell us we need to eat all day long, right? Like mm-hmm. six meals a day, you need protein. Breakfast is the most important. Um, and I, I think a lot of it is I I've found in my life through my experiments to be false. It's like, we don't need mm-hmm. to constantly eat throughout the day. We don't need all these crazy levels of quote unquote protein. Um, and even, you know, I did an experiment at one point where I asked people, my friends and, and family, it's like, do you read any of the labels of the food you buy? And if yes, do you read the nutrition label or do you read the ingredients label first? What do you focus on? And most people focused on the nutrition label. And so they weren't even paying attention to what was actually in their food. All they were paying attention to was what was written in terms of like the amount of proteins or carbs or Mm -hmm. calories. And Mm -hmm. it goes back to that thing where according to nutrition, uh, what's in the food is not important. Only the nutrients are important, regardless of whether even it's real food that your body can digest, right? It can have all these magical nutrients that you're told are good, but if your body can't even take them in because it's these weird chemicals, you can't even read. I don't know if that really makes a big difference. And so, yeah, back to fasting though, if we all just try our own fasting experiments and log how we, you know, how do you feel? What's your energy level? Um, was this consistent with what you thought it was going to be? How hungry were you? Did you find that seeing food or external cues made you hungry despite really not feeling internally hungry? So I I think it's a really good experiment from the standpoint of self-awareness and just seeing like, is the way I've eaten my whole life the best way for me to feel um, great? And you might surprise yourself. And the more, the broader you experiment and explore, the more data you can collect to then determine like, okay, well, which one of these do I actually want to try out for like a week or a month or whatever it might yeah. be. Um, and also just as a, just as a little aside, I, I didn't embark on a 12 day water fast without a ton of preparation. Right. So I should just say like, I don't encourage anybody to do something like that. Like we had already changed our diet years in advance. We, you know, like that's a medically supervised type of, of fast. Um, and then the other thing is like, you don't, you don't necessarily have to fast water fast or juice fast at all. Right. Like these are just like ways to, these are just options and experiments that you, you can do. Like, you're not obligated. We're not saying like, you must try a fasting experiment, you know, like if that's not, if that's not happening right now, but like, but just understand the more understanding, the more self-awareness and the more experimentation on a small level, um, 
is is what 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 you're gonna become more have deeper understanding about what is food and nutrition, et cetera. Yeah. And, and take note too of the resistance that you feel to fasting and yeah. sit with, where is that resistance coming from? Like, do I have a fear that I'm actually going to be ill if I don't eat food? Um, is this my body? Am I doing harm to my body or is this my body essentially going through withdrawal because I've given it this, um, constant influx of food. And it's now like literally, um, my body is addicted to receiving like, you know, I know people that stopped that stop eating bread and they literally go through withdrawal. Like they literally feel terrible. Their brain doesn't work very well. It's like their body saying, Hey, 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 you've literally given us bread for so long. We've learned to run off bread. How are you stopping giving us bread? We're going to mm-hmm. punish you with some discomfort to make you give us bread. Um, and so I think only the individual can really make the distinction between like, is this really bad for me? Or is this short-term discomfort I need to go through to kind of recalibrate my body and get it off of this, and this uh, off of requiring this weird substance that I'm not supposed to be eating all the time, but I have been. So I think it's, yeah, if there's resistance or if there's discomfort, sit with it instead of just writing it off. Cause I think there's some good lessons to be learned there. Mm-hmm. Um, another thing I want to talk about is this whole notion of always making sure that we're prioritizing our biology over our ideology. And I bring this up because I have a friend and she decided to go um, vegan for a period of time and had a ton of issues. Um, and her ideology was that um, she made the moral choice to not eat meat because um, she thought that it was an immoral thing to do. And, you know, who am I to say that that's wrong or right? She had to do her own experiments and and find her own path. But this whole notion that when your ideology is telling you not to do something, but your body is pushing back in a big way saying that this is not, um, this is not going well. I think it's always good to fare on the side of respecting our biology. Um, and so I, I really think that lots of experiments are good, but we have to note that there are biological constraints, um, that we have to kind of work within. And so, um, you know, like I think we get really deeply rooted in some of these ideological paradigms of like, you know, being a vegan or being a carnivore or being a paleo. And I I think that can sometimes actually limit our ability to experiment and see things that might work really well that we might not be allowing ourselves to explore. And so, you know, I I often go back to life eats life. Um, If we categorize life as anything created by nature, then theoretically a head of lettuce is just as much life as a cow. Um, and it's not so much what we eat, but maybe how we do it. What significance do we attach to it? How much are we making sure that that lettuce was grown in a good environment that's respecting the integrity of the soil? How much are we ensuring that the way that cow was raised and the way it was, the meat was harvested, like that cow's not going to live forever, but if it can, um, provide nutrients to humans in a very, in a way that respects the laws of nature and is uh, morally ethical, then I I think we just have to kind of take a step back and say, life eats life. My body is designed to consume life because that life then contributes to the nutrients of my body. Um, I just think it's important to be mindful that biology always trumps ideology and to be mindful of that. Yeah. Yeah. That's a big old dangerous slippery slope when you start moralizing food, you know, Mm. I mean, there's no, I mean, ethics, I mean, like, it's just an opportunity for more scientific method, you know, like we, we are teaching ourselves and learning together and sharing, like, how can we use 
science in a productive way. You know, um, you do the experiment, you see how you feel. If it's, you know, I, I mean, I used the example in the beginning of our talk about like going through the country. I mean, I had to, ha I mean, I'm not a vegan, you know, and I, but when I went, drove through the Central Valley and looked at the, the quality of the cattle farming, um, I was struck. And then, so like, then I asked myself like, well, how do I want to, how, how, how can I, how am I going to participate in this? Like, and then you ask yourself all the questions, you know, could I actually harvest the meat myself? I, I, I don't know. I, I don't know if I can, but can I participate? I mean, my neighbor was a, a hunter and I helped skin the wild boar. And, you know, those things are, you know, we, we, I think as humans, like we have become so comfortable that like, we don't really have a purpose. You talked about like breakfast being the important, most important meal. Well, yeah. If you were out in the fields working all day or building, or like we were like, we were physically working and moving all day long. And so you would go, you would eat breakfast because you would be gone for six hours working, doing something with your body. And then you'd come back and you'd probably fast for four or five, six, seven hours in between. And then you'd come home for a, a dinner meal or whatever, and then you would fast for the night. So, I mean, it's just, I think it, there's just so much to talk about in regarding like the original factory settings and the original circuitry. And like, do you want to return to the original true pleasures of what it means to be human? Because this is an opportunity to do that if that's something that we choose. Yeah. And I think, I think the cool thing about this community, you know, we had this discussion about meat, um, which we've sort of <clears throat> extracted the transcript. I'm going to do a final proof because there's some repetitive parts just based on how Slack organized it. But we had a great, we had a, a great example of a beautiful disagreement where we had many people with many different perspectives, all of them mm -hmm. equally valid. Um, and we could disagree on things without really like targeting the person. It was more like, okay, I want to hear this person out. I want to hear their perspective in case they have information that I don't have. And mm -hmm. I don't know, it was a really good example. We're going to post that as a layer three resource because it's a really good example of how we can disagree and respectfully honor each other's perspectives while acknowledging that we're all kind of figuring this out together as time goes on independently yeah. and collectively. So I think, um, you know, it's, it's fine to have our own different perspectives as long as we're keeping each other honest to make sure that like, is this perspective you're taking coming at the expense of your health? Um, and are you aware of that? And can we have a broader conversation about things like meat or things like different um, diets and the merits and um, potentially the drawbacks of each of them and just be objective about it without getting sort of um, ideologically intertwined so much so that we care way more about defending that than we do about actually listening to other people. So, so yeah, we'll post that. Um, and the last thing I want to talk about before we get into experiments is uh, this notion of feedback signals, right? It's like, okay, if you're doing food experiments and you're trying different things, what is the meaningful data to extract to guide future experiments or to guide future decisions? And I think we sometimes get disconnected with the feedback signals that are built into our bodies that are, that, um, are sort of related to food. Right. And, you know, even things like what are your energy levels like? Um, what is your mental focus like? Are you cramping or bloating? Um, how's your poop? Right. Like people don't really talk. It's kind of a crappy topic to talk about, but I think it's like, <laughs> it's like our direct box. feedback mechanism of like, well, the quality of your poop probably has some input or, or some bearing on the quality of the food you're eating and how well your body's digesting it. Right. Even things like soreness. And so I think connecting what you ate with how you feel 
is really important because it allows you to it allows you to detect these patterns that you might not intuitively recognize um, because of the time lag, right? Like when you eat something, there's a time lag before your body digests it, and then you might have some sort of physical manifestation of of um, a feedback signal, and so. Um, and even things like identifying cravings, like what, when you crave a certain food, is it because you have an external cue that made you think of that food? Is it because your body's telling you, I want these nutrients, therefore you're craving like a certain root, root vegetable or something. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, yeah, I think this is where a food journal can be really powerful. Even taking a brief note of like, and I think this is one of the, a good experiment for people to do is like log what you ate for a certain period of time and each day write down how you feel, right? There's anything that's uh, an outlier, you feel especially good, or you feel uh, not very good, or you have some, uh, you know, weird feeling that you haven't had in a while, like, can you associate that with something you ate? And especially as we're experimenting, and exploring with different ways um, of eating food, I think it's a, a good place to really buckle down on taking good notes so that you can build those um, mm-hmm. so that you can recognize those patterns. Yeah, for sure. Cool. So you want to talk about uh, some experiments and then we'll wrap this up. Yes. Nikki Pop. Well, you talk about, you have some experiments there and then I put one in specifically. I think you talked about, I, I don't have them on my, up on my screen. Okay. I've got them. Yeah. So I think with food, it's just about experimenting a lot. Um, yeah. You know, I still experiment regularly when I get into a funk of constantly having the same pattern of, of eating the same foods in the same way. I think, that's usually a reminder to me to say like, you know, explore a little bit, try different things. Um, even doing a fast, you know, like once a month doing a 24 hour fast might not seem like something significant, but it, it, it can be significant. And then writing down, like, how do I feel when I do that? How hungry am I? What cravings do I have? All that kind of stuff. Um, so be mindful, experiment a lot, put down a lot of data so that you can go back afterwards and sort of mine out the patterns that might not be super obvious, um, without actually looking at things you recorded. So, um, some experiments log three personal food objectives. So when it comes to the food pillar of health, what are some objectives that you can write down for yourself? Uh, you know, the, these, these 10 days, these 10 hours of time spent on food, what are some objectives for yourself that you want to achieve, uh, within the foot nerd program, but specifically within the pillar of food, um, log what you eat for seven days. So what you eat, when you eat it, how you feel, that's a really, I think, potent self-awareness exercise. Um, Reflect on your relationship with food. Like what does food mean to you? How do you view food? Um, Grow some food. So even if it's like growing a little tiny herb garden inside, like grow something and see Mm -hmm. what that does with your perspective of food. Um, Try out some sort of fasting challenge, which can go anywhere from skipping a meal to doing a 24 hour fast, doing a time restricted feeding window, doing a longer water fast, like build up to it slowly. And obviously, um, you know, modify things as tolerated to make sure that you're not causing yourself uh, any, you know, huge discomfort, but really be mindful of the signals you get from that. Um, Cook a meal from scratch. That seems like a weird one to say, but I think a lot of people um, no longer cook meals from scratch. Um, Log when you're craving certain foods so that you can go back and kind of identify um, when you got that craving, right? Like I know people who eat chips. um, I know one friend in particular that like will watch Netflix and eat chips. And every time I see them, like, I know that they're, I know that they do that. Um, And so even just logging, like, is it a habitual thing? 
Um, is it a body thing? Like what are like, when do you crave certain things? Writing those down and seeing the pattern can, can make it more obvious, can make you mm-hmm. more aware of it. Um, and then another good experiment is sort of clean up your home food environment. So if there are foods that you consume regularly that you know maybe aren't great for your health and you want to consume less of, um, make them less visible to reduce the external cue of, you know, if you see the, if you see the chips, you're probably going to want the chips. So what happens when you put the chips in the back of the cupboard? I think Alex, one of the foot nerds said he did that experiment and he totally forgot about the chips and found them like a long time later. And (laughs) yeah, um, out of sight, out of mind a lot of times. So clean up your home food environment to sort of align it with, um, your food objectives, right? If you want to eat more fruit and less chips, make fruit very visible front and center and make chips very invisible. Exactly. (laughs) Those are some big ass avocados too. I know. Right. Look great. I know. (laughs) Listen, Nikki pop. I have a big experiment that I think is really, really revealing. And that is that, uh, when you cook your meal from scratch, invite somebody over a few people or one other person, put on a little bit of music without lyrics that you like, that's calming, not like you know, maybe not the death metal or the punk right then. Like save that for after when you're dancing and then eat the meal in silence. So that's a good one. It's, it's such a powerful. So we did this experience. We would go to this, um, this campus in California where every, every quarter they would have like a day of silence and some volunteers would make the two meals And they were just like simple, delicious meals, but they would provide the meals. And then we would all come in there, maybe 20 or 30 of us. And we would go around the campus reading, walking, but no talking all day. And then you would eat your meal with eight other people. Um, There were probably tables set up around, like if you were at a wedding. And then we would go through the line and get our food and we would sit down and then we would all be facing each other because the table was round and we would eat in silence. And the first time I did that, it was the most uncomfortable thing. And and then when I settled into it, I don't know why, but I started crying. I, I, I started crying like into my soup. Like it was so incredibly powerful. And I think that there, I don't even know why it's that powerful, but it is. And so and that might not happen for you. I'm kind of a, I'm kind of a sappy crybaby, but um, there's so much in there about like eating, pausing and not talking and not alone. You be, you're with other people. So I, that's a big, um, that's a big food experiment. I want to propose. That's a good one. I remember. And I also want to show you my, I also want to show you my beans. When you said grow food, these, these beans, Matthew and I grew, they're so pretty. Um, in the city like on the terrace and they're like I don't know if you can see but they're like these really cool speckled I think they're called cranberry beans or something and we dried them and they and they were so and it was so satisfying to grow freaking beans nice it's satisfying to grow (laughs) anything right especially if it's something you're going to consume I think there's a different level of like care and love that goes into bringing something from like seed to plant that you then eat and it just like deepens the food experience, right? There's a difference it's, between just like consuming food and then having a food experience, like what you said, where it's like not talking is a food experience. Um, yes. And even Thich Nhat Hanh in one of the books that I read from him, he said, you know, and maybe this is a good experiment is like, take 10 minutes to eat a tangerine, like take literally a full 60 seconds to eat each little slice of a tangerine and really like 
tune into all the flavor and the texture and all the little individual packets in each slice that are kind of bursting and the flavor profile. And like, I don't think we really your, your take mouth the time just started to, watering. <laughs> to, yeah. I don't think we take the time to really be present and really like tune into the deep, deep layers of experience when we're eating something. So maybe that's a good experiment to try out. And uh, yeah, we'd love to hear what people, how people's experiments go. Yes. So. Okay. So if nothing else, then we'll wrap up this lesson. It's a doozy. This one was a doozy. Um, it's an important we, one. Though. It is a very important one. We want to say, you know, again, thank you for taking care of your health. Um, this this is proof of listening to this episode. Episode <laughs> listening to this lesson is, <laughs> is is proof of work. And um, if you have questions, reach out. We do the experiments. Talk to your pod mates, discuss with your learning partner, um, dig in and let's have some fun and we will see you on Slack, right, Nikki Pop? You got it. Thanks for showing up, nerds. And we yep. look forward to hearing some good layer two conversations about how people's experiments are going. And if you have any experiments to contribute, uh, please let us know on Slack. We can add them to the um, lesson file so that there's, you know, the more experiments we can put in there, the better. So yep. thanks for listening and we'll catch you next time. Ciao for now, nerds. <laughs>